0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to A608 After Hours. My name is Monica Higgins.
1: And I'm Uche Mechi
0: And we welcome you back, and we look forward to our conversation today and to welcoming Tony Morgan. Tony, welcome.
2: It's great to be here. Thanks for having
0: me. Yeah, it's wonderful to have you. Um, so, just starting off with some reflections this week. Um, oh, my goodness. Um, it's hard to think about anything but the election, to be honest. Um, our ca- our class discussions have been terrific, but um, they've really left me thinking about topics like upward voicing, how we can ensure that good ideas are not just raised up or voiced, but that they're also cultivated so those good ideas get implemented. I'm also thinking about our own instincts which somebody talked about in class today which are often to defend ourselves and our own views rather than to question to really get to understand another person's perspective this may come from the ways in which we were perhaps brought up experiences we've had in school maybe it has to do with places we've worked we talk about we talked about career imprints that perhaps we've picked up along the way from working at strong cultured organizations or institutions. Um, but there's no doubt that this country needs to change. We need to change. We have a lot of work to do. So I've been thinking a lot, but that's that's a kind of summary. Uche, what have you been thinking
1: about? I'm also thinking about career imprints and how important that initial professional culture can be to shaping who we are, both professionally and beyond. How it, and then I'm thinking, how can we be intentional about not only building such a culture, so we as the leaders of those organizations that would host these young um, new professionals, how can we build a culture of inclusivity and psych safety But also, how can we structure it in a way that acknowledges that perhaps there is this oversized impact that that culture may have on those that are early or new in their careers? So yesterday morning um, at a board meeting, while folks were lamenting on how divided the country is, I started thinking about how we develop our students, so this was a board for charter school, um, middle and high school. So I was thinking about how, how can we develop our students into future leaders that can, they can confidently stride into such a divided context and help bring people together. So the capabilities, connections, confidence, and cognition to lead to lean into the void and to help create order. That's the kind of culture I think we need now. And that's the kind of culture that I'd like to build.
0: Mm, So powerful. I was at this research conference last night and we started talking about the election. And one of our panelists said, we have a culture sickness in America. And that just really stuck with me. So this idea of culture, culture really resonates. Um, so, Tony, we're so happy to have you here. You um, really are somebody who um, has been focused on building and shifting culture. So, just a little bit of background Tony Morgan is an entrepreneur and public interest technologist whose work combines her personal passion for equity and professional background as a leader in education, social justice, and the arts. Since 2018, Tony has worked with legal scholars, industry leaders, and activists to address important tech justice issues, from facial recognition technology to labor rights in the digital economy to free speech and social media platforms. Tony currently lives in Boston, where she is the managing director at the Center for Law, Innovation, and Creativity at Northeastern School of Law. And she's an MBA candidate at the Sloan School of Management at MIT. Tony, welcome once again. And please, um, you know, just take a moment or two to add to that introduction. Anything you want to share?
2: Um, It is such a privilege. Um, You know, even with the current moment that we are in, you know, kind of thinking about what's happening with the election and the results and um, all of that to, to be able to have a conversation with my favorite professor from grad school. So, and I'm not sucking up. (laughs) Um, I think that a lot of the things that I learned, um, in A608 have really shaped who I've become. So it's a real honor to be here, um, and be able to now look back five years and be able to hopefully, I think, connect, connect a few dots. Um, but I think you captured everything in my intro about who I am and, and what I do. I guess the last so thing I'll nice. say is go Raptors. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> That's oh. where I am. There's, there's the Celtics and the Raptors divide. I'm, oh, definitely, okay. a, I'm definitely a Raptors fan.
0: <laughs> <laughs> All right. That's wonderful. Um, okay, so let's dig in. So this is election week here in the United States. Um, as you know, we are now and have been a very divided country. Some would argue we're even more divided than ever. And as you're from Toronto, Canada... And also, having worked in the States, you understand well that this is not a unique problem to the States. Mm -hmm. It's one that you've leaned into directly as an entrepreneur creating The Beat, an initiative to raise the voices of musicians, to your work now at Northeastern Center for Law, Innovation and Creativity. Tell us what you've learned about bridging seemingly intractable divides in your work, especially around race. I know you've spoken a lot on these topics. Tell us a couple of things that stand out as key takeaways, especially right now.
2: Thank you. Um, Yeah. So, I mean, so, so last year or not last year, excuse me, four years ago around the, you know, the last election, I was on the ground floor at Hugsy in Gutman, you know, kind of at the student watch party. And I had, I decided to go there because a few hours prior, I was a TF for ethnic studies with um, uh, Professor Christina Villarreal, or V for those who know her. Um, and so I could, there was a lot of, um, there was a lot in that moment in, in, as a Canadian at a watch party, thinking that I'm about to watch this incredible historical moment, thinking that you know the political winds are gonna shift in in I would say the direction of progress um, and and realizing and watching and experiencing that collective just kind of hit to the chest that just like collectively winded um, at the at the election result four years ago um, and thinking about you know what we were doing you know in ethnic studies, you know, which is a course where we talk about humanizing people. We talk about um, stories and narratives. We talk about um, you know the ways that narratives are shaped to um, marginalize, silence, oppress, and are sometimes used to justify um, really harmful and and um, uh, and I would say, violence on people and communities. Um, and so I was holding, i you know, I was holding all of that four years ago. And didn't know what to do with it. Because in Toronto, where I come from, multiculturalism, at least on the surface level, is a is just a de facto way of being, right? So I went to, you know, in middle school, I went to Bhangra dances because I was surrounded by, you know, the, the Sikh and Indian community. That was just like a natural thing that we did. Um, my neighbors were Italian. The people across the street from me were, were Black Muslims. The people a couple doors down from them were, you know, Middle Eastern and Muslim, right? Like it was just, and my family is, you know, my mom is British, my dad is Jamaican. Mm -hmm. Like it to me, being exposed and being sensitive to the stories and narratives that shape people's culture, that was just part of the way I lived, right? And so that was also the way that I worked too. Um, I just always took into consideration how many identities and cultures are in the room, and how do I ensure that we create space. to, for everyone, right, and also and while also balancing what our group norms are. So um, when I think about what this current political moment is, you know, I think this this you know I think about coming from a space where you just kind of are raised to to know and and recognize the diversity and um, the the nuance of what it means to live and exist in North America as someone who's considered an other versus you know living on the other side of the border, living in the U.S. where that that doesn't seem to be, uh, that doesn't seem to be a a normative idea in some spaces. Um, And so I think as a practitioner trying to navigate these two spaces, I'm trying to reconcile those two things, to be honest. Um, I'm trying to think about, especially as someone who's running a social justice, intellectual property, technology law research center um, at a school that is, branded itself as the queerest law school in the, in the country, um, that has a lot of initiatives that essentially creates, um, a pipeline of, of students who become public defenders around the, across the country, you know, what does it mean for me to balance all of these things, right? How do I, how do I, as a practitioner in the tech law, in the social justice, in the higher ed space, as a Canadian who's lived with this particular experience, how do I bring all of those things together? And I think right now, what I'm seeing with this election is a very interesting type of solidarity. Like we are waiting with bated breath, and in in between these moments, people are sending messages of support and solidarity to each other. Um, and everyone is and, and I mean everyone, not just in this country but around the world, everybody is waiting for an answer, right? and so it's it's a this is a different experience than the one I had four years ago where I was feeling not my own personal pain, but like a community pain um, because of, you know, you know, you know, sitting on that, you know, in the ground, on the ground floor at Gutman. Um, Now I'm, I'm, I'm experiencing a kind of like a preparation for healing, if I could call it that. And I think that's really important when we're talking about identity and when we're talking about race and we're talking about how to create cultures of belonging, because there's definitely a harm. And I think there also needs to be a space for healing. Um, And so Whatever the outcome is, I know that the experience that I've had is, you know, whether it's with my classmates or my coworkers, people are beginning to prepare for how to heal and how to support um, and how to, you know, whatever, again, whatever the outcome is, find a way to move on together. And I think that is probably if I'm gonna hold on to a sliver of, of hope um, and see the silver lining, for me, that's what it would be.
0: Mm. Yeah, I love that. Um so you kind of touched on this but I want to you know kind of move in a little further on on the topic of identity. So sure. I remember when you were in A608 um ages ago and one day you told us that a film crew was coming in to catch some B-roll of you being at Harvard. <laughs> yeah. Um and that was that in connection was fun. to Yeah, it was. <laughs> we were all on our toes that day, I remember. <laughs> um and that was in connection to um a bunch of pieces that have been written up and aired about your journey from being um, homeless growing up to eventually coming to Harvard for your master's degree in education. So, when you think about, um, think back now, so many, so many years later, tell us what it is that you pull out about your identity and background that you believe has
2: really shaped who you are, who you're becoming today. Um, so one of the things that, so first of all, that the the film crew was interesting, um, because I think we, the world acts a little, or it seems to look a little different when there's a camera on, on you and the world you live in. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so that was a really interesting moment for me to get a sense of, and here, here, an entire crew talked to me about what, about my life they want to capture, And then I'd have to talk to them and say, well, that's actually not my life, right? Or that Mm -hmm. is my life, right? And so that was um, a really interesting experience. Um, And so that to me was, you know, one of the things I learned was just how important narratives are, um, the stories that we tell ourselves about who we are in the world around us. But then also thinking about that film crew, the stories that other people who are responsible for you are the stewards of other people's stories, um, the stories that they decide to retell, right? So there are the stories we tell ourselves and then there are the stories that we retell. And I think um, had it not been for that, that experience with the film crew, I don't think I would have thought as, I wouldn't have been as conscious about the difference between the two um, because I just thought living my life, they saw the exact same thing that I saw. And of course they saw something completely different and that was shaped by, You know what they read about me in the newspaper. What they, you know, what Mm -hmm. you know, whatever sideline conversations they had about me. Whatever they found in their internet research. So all of these other things shaped who they thought I was. And then they met me, and then I had to tell them who I thought I was. And then there's something that happened. You know, somewhere in the middle, you know, that's where the story kind of comes out. And so that taught me a lot, and that really has shaped, you know, that that shaped who I, you know, what kind of TF I was, for example, in in ethnic studies. I also did some work with, um, Dr. Pamela Mason, um, in her, um, uh, literacy for, uh, I can't remember actually what it's called. I believe it's literacy for racial justice or culturally responsive literacy instruction. That might be the better, the better title. Um, but just thinking about all of those things that, you know, before we step into any room, before we engage with any person, what are the stories that we're telling ourselves about the world that we live in and the person or the environment that we're about to engage in um, and engage with? And then how much of that do I believe? And then how much, do I, how, how much of that do I believe? Um, so so how, how much of that am I invested in so that I actually tell that to other people and use that to shape their identity or their reality? Mm. Um, mm-hmm. Because there, I think that there is, especially in, in education, we are giving our version of the world to a group of people and depending on our power and our relationship to them, they're going to internalize our version and it's going to fuse with their own version. And then that shapes their, you know, who they are moving forward. So stories have become really, really important to me. Um, And so before we start anything, I try to find all of my ways to kind of check, you know, do a, do a reality check, do a, you know, you know, connection to, are we living in the same world? Are we living in a similar world? How do we get our, our planets or our worlds to align? And then how do we, you know, move on from there? Um, And that has been, you know, I'd love to give more lessons, but that is, you know, what I think about everything, it always connects back to that was, you know, what's the story you tell, what's the story you're retelling, or what's the story you believe in? What's the story you're retelling?
1: Thank you, Tony. Stories are so powerful. And so sometimes just like underappreciated. So thank you for bringing us back to that. And I'm wondering, I don't know if this is connected to kind of the way you've talked about your, how would I say, your lens on the world and maybe how you see the world and how the world sees you. But I know that one of your major focuses at Northeastern is tech justice. Yeah. What's tech justice? Can you tell me a little bit more about that? And then I'd like to dig into that a little bit, like why that's important to you.
2: Sure. So, um, so in my intro, um, I was, I use public interest technologists as a, as a, uh, I uh, I use public interest technologists as a way to identify my position in the world, my positionality in the world. And public interest technology is a, is a burgeoning field. Um, And it's this idea that Engineers, policy writers, coders, graphic designers—anybody that works in the digital space that is also committed to justice—need to have a conversation about our uh, the world's investment in technological determinism and think about what interventions we need to create to slow that down. So, this idea that you know believing in technology for technology's sake um, has brought us to a place of incredible innovation. Um, but there are also some consequences if left unchecked. And so it's not gonna require just one engineer or one person focused on tech ethics or one particular researcher, but that it's gonna require a host of people working at different levels um, throughout the innovation ecosystem to really think help people think critically about the way that we're deploying technology to make life easier or more enjoyable for people and for who.
1: Interesting. So is this or maybe this includes all of this. So like biases and algorithms or like jobs, absolutely. like taking like automation, taking away people's jobs or like, what just got passed. Speaking of the election in um, both here in Massachusetts regarding, um, I think it was like right to repair. And then yes. in yeah. the West Coast and about like Proposition Uber and whatnot. 22. So That's can you right. say, talk about some of those things? How do they fit into your... Disc- yeah. So, w-
2: yeah, so within my lens, so, so with the work that I do at, at CLIC, which is the Center for Law Innovation and Creativity, uh, call it Click for short. Um, so our faculty are working on a whole host of issues across the spectrum of intellectual property and, and technology, but with a particular focus on privacy law. So on one side of the spectrum, on the intellectual um, intellectual property side of the spectrum, we're looking at um, the way patents are used as a way to provide access to medicine and affordable care. And currently around this, this you know, race to find a vaccine for COVID-19, for example, um, thinking about what kind of um, invisible hierarchies are going to be created once um, the you know, once a vaccine is is um, uh, discovered and and created and deployed, one. But two, when we combine that with and this is kind of connects to the tech piece. When we think about the ways that, for example, contact tracing um, for people who may have been exposed to folks who've been exposed who are either you know tested positive for for COVID nineteen or at high risk, and we think about the overrepresentation or the, um, um, or the ways in which. Uh, COVID-19 has impacted communities of color and working class and low-income communities of color. Connecting all of those pieces together raises a really big question about equity and justice in the tech economy, because now we're now creating a culture of surveillance where health records of low-income people are being shared. We're creating a culture where um, this type of surveillance is permissible, and there are going to be, especially, I mean, because we're talking about a vaccine that will cure the world, right? And so, Trying to balance, you know, how do countries um, manage their intellectual property regime so that one, everyone can get access to this vaccine when they need it, but that there aren't also that we also need to consider kind of the governance structures that will disenfranchise um, racialized low income and marginalized communities. Um, just by virtue of of, of the way that COVID nineteen is impacting these communities, so it's super interdisciplinary work, um, um, and it's it's really interesting. And then on the other side, when we're thinking, for example, of Proposition twenty two, which is um, uh, which was the the ballot measure in California around um, classifying Uber drivers or or um, Uh, Lyft drivers, Uber drivers as employees, as opposed to independent contractors Um, and thinking about, you know, what are, what are some of the labor rights considerations that we need to take into account when we have a, um, we have companies that are not prepared to take on, uh, take on employees and provide support and benefits to employees, but uh, this against a backdrop of a crumbling system where Gig you know where you know folks in the gig economy are independent contractors don't have access to health care don't have access to the other kinds of affordable housing don't have you know might live in food deserts um so so what does it mean or what questions do we need to raise around you know what perhaps labor practices look like or perhaps how these tech companies are you know are governed um, and then kind of the the sweet spot for for click of the work that we're doing currently around privacy law is thinking about the ways that private data is being commodified, um, and then thinking about who has access to that data. And then again, connecting back to this culture of surveillance, um, how people are using that. So not just, um, you know, law enforcement, but how are teachers using the data to surveil students and to, um, um, Track students in one group or another, or deny access or provide access to resources for for various types of students. Um, so, how is data being weaponized in ways that you know and used for nefarious purposes in ways that we've never imagined? And then, what kinds of governance structures need to be imposed? And what do we need to learn about the way we think about innovation in order for that to happen? So, this happens on the education level. This happens mm-hmm. on when we're thinking about the legal level, when we're you know on the level of the law at policy, but also just like in the tech set, or, you know, the innovation sandbox, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. you know, that's, that's kind of, that's a little smattering, a little sampling <laughs> of the work that we do. No,
1: I love it. And as I'm listening to you earlier on, you were talking about the importance of story and the narrative. And as I'm hearing a lot of these topics that you're talking about, like with the proposition in California and even, even the vote here, a lot of, what I'm hearing is really the importance of how these issues are net, are framed and yeah. what stories are being told, because you can look at something as a privacy issue while you can look at it as like a freedom of speech issue. That's right. Um, and there's a lot of these conversations still happening in all of these um, areas. I wonder, you said like there's a lot that you're focusing on. Is there like an area that you feel like it's under? Like is not receiving as much attention, or perhaps you're going to be turning your attention to in the next year or so, that you haven't talked about?
2: Um, so I have become really interested in um, the work that is happening around free speech on our on digital platforms. So how we're governing speech, how we're talking about hate speech, how we're talking about, or how anti, you know, how um, discrimination and harassment show up on these digital platforms. Because now that we're virtual, we're seeing a proliferation of not only engagement on these platforms, but incidents of, you know, um, uh, incidents of of expressions of of hatred, of expressions of discrimination. Um, uh, You know, they're thinking about, for example, the ways that Facebook groups are being used to organize around um, hate groups. Um, and so, and, and thinking about Facebook's response to say, well, you know, sorry, we're just, we're just the platform. Um, and so thinking about the responsibility between our platforms of engagement and what that means in terms of the harms that it might create for people is something I'm very interested in. And for me, this actually connects to, um, Something that I thought about in A608, which is around how organizations learn or do they learn and how to build infrastructures, you know, build the right infrastructure. So an organization develops a, um, you know, develops a framework for learning so they can they can, I think, become more resilient. Um, And so that's that is work that I'm I'm really interested in. I support twelve faculty members. Quick as you know supports twelve faculty members, so it's not like it's going to be the key thing that we do, but it's certainly going to be um, something that's top of mind in the way that we do our programming. Um, and then the second thing is is just uh, the, the the banner is called cyber civil rights, and so thinking about. Um, The other part of this work that's connected to kind of what's happening on platforms is some work that's happening around cyber civil rights and specifically around um, what's happening on dating apps um, around, uh, you know, uh, uh, like blackmail and like revenge porn and things that, you know, Mm we're recognizing that there is a permanent memory on the Internet and that there could be people that are using information to really, you know, denigrate someone just because they, they feel, they feel, they felt slighted, you know, they didn't get a response that they liked. Got it. Tony, um, can so, I yeah. ask
1: you one quick follow-up? So sure. this is a naive, but hopefully intelligent question. Okay. From some of the things that you've touched on, I can definitely he- see the legal perspective. Like as you are at the law school and there's le- there's kind of law in the, um, the name of the center. So can you just help me? Understand maybe a little bit more of the legal perspective that you may be bringing, or perhaps legal solutions that you're thinking about?
2: Sure. Um, so let me be really clear. I'm not a lawyer. <laughs> um, so we'll say that to start with. Um, but so, for example, when we're talking about Facebook's response to we're just a platform, that relates to the Communication Decency Act, right? Um, CDA 230, right? And so In particular, there is a, um, you know, it is enshrined in law that platforms cannot be held accountable for whatever happens on their platforms. Um, And I'm being, this is super high level. I'm not getting into the details of the law, of course, but essentially that's what what it says. And there are lots of questions around how to hold platforms or if platforms should be held responsible um, and whether that, you know, CDA 230 needs to be updated. Um, When we're talking about, you know, uh, uh, the privacy, uh, facial recognition, for example. You know, we're thinking about there is actually no federal law around privacy, but Europe and and California, for example, have implemented. So in in Europe, it's called GDPR, and mm-hmm. um in California, it's called CCPA. Essentially, it's the protection of people who um and the rights of people who have access to whatever information websites collect about them around um you know identifiable uh data. So their personal information, their their uh purchasing preferences, the any information that's collected by a company, um, that's stored on a database by a company, people should have access to. And in Europe, they should they talk about the right to be forgotten, right? And so this idea that, you know, just because you have this information doesn't mean that you should be able to keep it and you should always I should have the right to say, I don't want you to remember me. Like let Mm -hmm. like let go of my info. and so that's kind of another in the in the privacy space. That's that's kind of the legal, um, you know, one of the, the, the um, legal doctrines that people are thinking about. Um, and then when we're thinking about, you know, patents, you know, we're, that's just that is just direct patents, you know, in, so that's intellectual property. And mm-hmm. in the at least in the, in the spaces that I'm in, folks would call that hard IP. So soft IP would be copyrights and trademarks and creative works hard IP would be technical patents. Um, so, you know, you, you created the, you know, you create a design or a methodology, or perhaps you even have a trade secret and you are granted permission to to monetize or monetize or capitalize from that thing, um, for a period of time. Um, and so with medicines, a lot of the medicines, not the generic ones, but, you know, special medications. So if you have MS or, you know, um, you know, there's a whole host of specific medications that, um, Are you know that are designed um, and protected by a patent that's been granted to a pharma company, Um, Mm -hmm. and the pharma company that you know when when they invest in their R and D and their clinical trials and all of that, they're doing that because they want to extract as much value as they can from that patent. uh, uh, from that innovation that becomes the patent that they then Got commercialize. Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. Thank you. Wow. You may not be a lawyer, but you are. Yep,
2: you're moving in that
0: direction. You're
1: thank you. so are
0: Very knowledgeable.
2: Very this knowledgeable. Is, I, t- I took a hard laugh and went to business school instead.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I think everything's going to come together for you, Then, no doubt. Um, it's so interesting you talking about, um, you know, how to hold – Organizations accountable at the same time as how do you enable organizations to learn? Yes. And how do you, how can you possibly do both at once? So this conversation has definitely left me thinking about that kind of tension of holding them accountable, even when perhaps legally we don't have to hold them accountable, but ethically we should hold them accountable. And how do we help them learn? Absolutely. I, I think you're, you're right in that space. I was also, um, I have to admit, I was I was left with your comment about the 2016 election where you said you felt we were collectively winded. And I kind of feel like the same way right now, collectively Uh winded. But this power of narratives and the power of stories um, is it sounds like um, it's an opportunity for us and a way for us to think about healing moving forward. I liked that whole piece as well. We've been talking about narratives. Do you remember the Little Red Book and Jan Carlson and all of that? We were talking about stories and symbols and, you know, um, and how those can be used and also misused. That was the latter part of your conversation and thinking about um, people's rights, frankly, you know, because people can make up all sorts of stories and that can turn into not just you know, disinformation or misinformation, but malinformation, and so that's um, just so powerful. So that's those are a couple of things I'm left thinking about. Um, how about you, Che?
1: I'm coming back to the importance of story. It's mm-hmm. so powerful. As I was listening to you talk, um, Tony, even though you're not a lawyer, you're so convincing. And you're so passionate about it. And as I'm thinking about, like, all of especially in this election season, but even looking specifically at those, like, propositions that we were talking about, there were so many f- strong stories and framing about it. And it can really drive people, help them understand, but it can also, stories can help polarize people, move mm-hmm. them in different directions. So it's such a powerful, but again, like I said earlier, I believe often underappreciated, um skill, that rhetoric piece. And then Mm -hmm. something that we didn't really push on or explore too much, kind of the inner workings of the center. But you mentioned kind of in passing that you support 12 faculty, and I'm assuming they probably range across a legal, um, creative, and innovative perspective. So you've got like these different um, areas that they're working in, perhaps different epistemologies in terms of how they think about what's right and so on and so forth. And to bring them together... I'm sure story has to play a powerful um, aspect in that, both to get them to understand each other and maybe align them to move in the same direction, but then to speak with one voice. So thank you.
2: Yeah. It's my pleasure. Um, Awesome. I just, I thank you for the the chance to speak and, and connect with you and be able to Bring all of the work I've done in the last five years since taking class to the floor.
0: Well, we love it. We love it. Hey, do you mind if we ask you a couple of um, fun questions? Yeah, let's do it. Okay. So um, we love to ask our guests what's uh, their favorite dessert. So what is it for you?
2: Chocolate chip cookies with (gasps) coffee ice cream. Coffee flavored ice cream. Yeah. Flavored
1: ice That is super decadent. Mm.
2: Oh, that's how I live, Uche.
1: I think you'd want to like, you'd want to like have the cookies and that's like intense. Milk. And then it's like, no. let's have some vanilla ice cream. No, you're like, no, no. This, you're like, I'm doubling it's in. It's rich. Yeah. Okay. All right, okay. Yeah, I'm, not like I'm not hating. I'm, I'm not hating. I can handle that. that. Um, all right. Let me ask you my question, which is kind of not as lighthearted but i think it'll it gives you space to reflect what are you most grateful for right now
2: right now um what am i most grateful for so many things um i'm gonna sound like a little bit of a cliche maybe (laughs) um I am. I am really so. In so in Toronto, um, I really, I really love living in Toronto. But I love working in Boston. I love the community that I have here. Community is really important to me, and so I am really grateful that you know highs and lows and like whatever the experience is in between. I have such an incredible community, kind of chosen family here um, that I'm really grateful for. Um, and they, they've, they've certainly made me better.
1: Brilliant. Mm, that's Brilliant. wonderful. Thanks for sharing.
0: All right. Last question then. What's one thing you wish somebody had told you about life after HGSE?
2: Oh, <laughs> these people travel with you. Uh-huh. you know, yeah. Yeah. Um, I, it was, it's such a shock to me that five years has passed because I'm still connected to so many people. And it feels like just yesterday we were in class together. Um, and so time is really fast. And so these people travel with you and, and remember that, (laughs) remember, you're not traveling and you're not traveling alone anymore. You've got, you've got a group of people you're traveling with and, um, whether it's jobs or babies or weddings or, you know, you're going to be part of it, whether it's just through a Facebook update or a deep conversation. Um, and it's 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 a beautiful addition to, I think, anyone's life when you have that shared experience together.
0: Mm-hmm. Wow. Oh, that's wonderful. Well, we've loved this shared experience of talking with you and we love having the opportunity to reconnect with you. So thank you so much.
1: Thank you so thank much. You. Thanks for that um, amazing plant behind you. That's just... <laughs> Thanks, a little little greenery to keep yes. yeah keep the spirit up. Indeed, sure. definitely. <laughs> Indeed, definitely. All right, AKA
2: my fake plant.
1: <laughs> okay, well you said it, not me. It matches my fake plant, but you know, oh neither here nor there. Bye.